Well, good morning, Incarnation. Good morning. Good morning. Some of you know that um, when I was in college, I studied philosophy and religious studies. But what some of you might not know is that at the time when I was 18 or 19 or whatever, I, I, um, I really wanted all religions to essentially be the same. I really wanted it to be the case that all paths led to God. And uh, I tried everything. I read the Quran. I visited a synagogue for Shabbat. I tried Zen meditation. I was having a conversation with my friend Jimmy, who was Mormon. I learned everything I could about Jesus. I took classes on Buddhism, Taoism, existentialism, and every other kind of ism. <laughs> and as I took these classes, I began to notice a strange pattern. I wonder if some of you have experienced this. It seemed that the classes about Christianity were all negative and deconstructive. The authority of the Bible was constantly undermined. The historical sins of the church were magnified. And Jesus was portrayed as a confused apocalyptic prophet who died on accident. Certainly not the Son of God. Meanwhile, when it came to my classes about other faiths, our professors were wont to show us all the beauty of these faiths and said that we have to take them on their own terms. Don't criticize. In other words, I noticed that my university had an unspoken ABC policy, anything but Christianity. So as students, we were encouraged to be open-minded about everything, except the possibility that Jesus was who he said he was. <laughs> And I thought this was strange, not to mention intellectually dishonest, especially because as I was seeking and searching and reading, Jesus seemed like the most compelling figure of all. So why was he being thrown under the bus? Why were we being made to think that we had thrown our brains in the trash can for following him? And meanwhile, we were being encouraged toward any other path. On a few occasions, I even had professors turn on me and snap if I asked a Socratic question to expose their anti-Christian bias. They didn't like that. And all decorum and professionalism went out the window when it came to intellectually bullying 19 and 20-year-olds who are trying to give any kind of outward expression of their faith. Now, of course, I know my situation was not unique. I know that now. About a hundred years before my own time in college, the British intellectual G.K. Chesterton was on his own religious quest, and he made the same observation. He noticed there was something peculiar about Christianity that causes men to want to throw their sticks at it, even the branch they're sitting on. So he said that a Marxist is willing to undermine the principles of Marxism and that a pluralist is willing to under, undermine the tolerance and, uh, of the pluralistic ideals, if only to oppose Christianity. <clears throat> and as I was a young man of 20 or 21, I remember wondering how it had gotten that way in my university. And whether someone had made a conscious decision that our curriculum or the professors had to speak negatively about Christianity, or whether it was just something that just kind of happened naturally. 
Well, our passage today from 1 John is helpful in answering this question. Turn with me there, if you would. Grab a pew Bible and turn to 1 John chapter 2, verses 18 through 27. You'll find the, last, the first verse of this text on the bottom of page 1021. Now, something that you need to know about the Apostle John is he's a very simple man. His Greek is the most simple in the New Testament. Very, very simple. Almost like a fisherman or something. <laughs> but he's also very profound. He's more of a mystic than a skeptic. But his words have a way of cutting to the quick. He might be the deepest thinker in his own simple way in the entire New Testament. Our passage begins in verse 18 with the statement that this is the last hour. And then John goes on to talk about the Antichrist and that already many Antichrists have come. Now this is a pretty ominous beginning to our passage. It sounds like the book of Revelation, doesn't it? So let's take a minute to unpack it. When John says that this is the last hour in Greek, eschate ora, which is where we get our word eschatology, a theology of end times... When John uses this word, he's not saying anything new. This is the viewpoint of the entire New Testament. So with the first coming of Christ and the sending of the Spirit, we've reached the final stage of history before the story is wrapped up with the second coming of Christ. There's no new age of human history to wait for after this. We are in the last days. Uh, a few weeks ago, I drew this picture for you, this idea of the overlapping of the ages, the present age and the age to come, the kingdom of God. And so between the cross and Jesus' second coming, we are living in the last days. That's a consistent message of the teachers of the New Testament, no matter who, who you're hearing from. So during this age, during this last age, during the last days, what we see is that God is patiently waiting for the full number of people to believe the gospel and turn to Christ before he wraps up all human history with his second coming. And the inauguration of this age, this in-between age, the age of the Spirit, is, comes with Jesus' first coming, his first advent, but also with the sending of the Spirit. We just heard about that in Joel 2. The, the age of the Spirit began as the Lord poured out his Holy Spirit and, and the, the democratization of prophecy, young and old, you know, children, even on male and female servants, it cuts across social class and standing. That, that the Holy Spirit is now available to all people, regardless of ethnicity, regardless of gender, regardless of social standing. That passage is quoted on the day of Pentecost by Peter as he preaches his sermon. He unpacks it. He says, this is what you're seeing right now. We've entered the last days, the age of the Spirit, the new covenant, where the Spirit is actually comes and dwells in us and is our primary teacher. Amen? Amen. And like the other authors of the New Testament, John never commits himself to a specific date or even a guess about when Christ would return. The exact time, according to the Bible, is known only to the secret counsel of God. And we know from 2 Peter 3.8 that the, for the Lord, one day is like a thousand years. So it's only been two days. <laughs> but even so, this end times mentality that the Apostle John had 
is viewed as a good thing in the Bible. I know that oftentimes we don't, we don't talk that way. We, we should talk more about the second coming of Christ. But it's viewed as a good thing in the Bible. The Lord Jesus himself told his disciples to remain watchful, right? To keep the oil of their lamps burning. You never know when the bridegroom is going to come, he said. This, this whole like Jesus could return at any day mentality, it carries with it a sense of urgency, doesn't it? Urgency for the mission of God. An urgency to fear God rather than man. An urgency to store up our treasures in heaven, not on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in through the window and steal. An urgency to share the gospel with our loved ones. We're not promised another day. And this is an urgency that the church desperately needs today. We need to be ready for the return of our Lord at any time. The theologian John Henry Newman has pointed out, Christ is ever at our doors. So given this sense of urgency in John's end times mentality, it's not surprising that he brings up the Antichrist. This mysterious man of lawlessness, as Paul calls him. He's alluded to also by the Old Testament prophet Daniel. This Antichrist, he's sort of the arch enemy of Christ and of God's people in the last days. But that's not John's main focus in this passage, so it's not going to be my main focus either. John's real point is that many Antichrists have already come, right? That's what he says, many have come. And to warn this community not to follow him, follow these Antichrists. So by, by these many antichrists, John is referring to that heretical breakaway group from their early church. He's, also, he's already mentioned that several times, who recently left the church that he's writing to. And John says they're like, they're like the heretical forerunners of the antichrist. I write these things to you, John says down in verse 26 always helpful when they explain why I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you so he just interprets the words that we're about to look at just so you know this is what I was writing to you about and these antichrists it's not just that they're in error right they're actively trying to deceive the people of God to steer them away from the truth of Jesus and John is eager to protect this young church. And he refers to what these people are, what, what's sort of empowering these people, what's motivating these people as an antichrist spirit. John writes in chapter 4, verse 3, that every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not of God. So there's other spirits, but if they don't confess Jesus, it's not of God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, he says, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. So we're living in this in-between age and there's a tension between the Holy Spirit and the spirit of the Antichrist. I wonder if any of you notice this Antichrist spirit at work in the world today. It certainly seems to be at work in my experiences on universities certainly seems to be at work in the media. It was alive in the governmental structures of Jesus' day when Herod said, murder all the boys under the age of two 
Because we want to make sure that Christ doesn't come. That's an antichrist spirit. It's present in our governmental structures today that allows us increasingly to murder children up to the very minute that they're born. These children who are created in the image of God. How could we allow ourselves morally to do that sort of thing except by the Antichrist spirit? That is not of God. We know it. But as deceptive as the spirit of the Antichrist might be, and this is serious, guys, we need to stay alert to these things. There is something proactively working against us, friends. But as deceptive as that Antichrist spirit might be, God's people have been given a powerful, built-in protector. Who is it? The Holy Spirit. The anointing of the Holy One of God. In this passage, John, John talks about the anointing of the Holy One, verse 20, and how this anointing teaches you about everything and to abide in Jesus, verse 27. And this word anointing comes from the Greek word chrisma. It's closely related to the word charismata that Paul uses for spiritual gifts. In the Old Testament, someone um, was anointed with oil. It was a symbolic gesture of their reception of the Holy Spirit, the sending of the Holy Spirit on them. And this practice um, called chrismation is uh, something that the early church begins to take up in their baptismal liturgies. So they would baptize somebody and they would anoint them with the oil and ask the Holy Spirit to come upon them. We call that chrismation. In fact, we practice that in this church. But more important than mere oil which may or may not have been used at this time, was the reality that it symbolized. The anointing of the Holy One of God, the anointing of the Holy Spirit, which guards us from the lies of the world and leads us into all truth. Jesus refers to the Holy Spirit as the helper, the advocate. He says to his disciples in John 16, 13, that when the Spirit of truth comes... He will guide you into all truth. Now, I just want to say it's, an, it's important to point out that the truth of the Spirit is not a matter of like subjective emotions or like Jesus goosebumps and that we can interpret however we want. According to John, in this passage, the anointing always leads people back to the apostolic message that they heard from the beginning. That's what it says in verse 24. And to the confession of Jesus Christ. That's what it says in chapter 4, verse 2. That that's what the true Spirit of God, that's what the true anointing leads us into alignment with. So the anointing is actually connected with the word of the gospel and with the confession of Jesus Christ. One Bible scholar puts it this way. He says, the antidote to false teaching is the inward reception of the word of God administered and confirmed by the work of the Holy Spirit. We see word and spirit are always in tandem. They're not in tension with each other in the New Testament church. Now, just because we receive the Holy Spirit doesn't mean that we know all truth all at once, right? During my senior year as a philosophy student, I had begun to really walk with Jesus. And I had this agnostic friend, a very honest agnostic, who was probably the smartest guy in the whole philosophy program. And we used to hang out together, and I used to pray for him to come to know Jesus, and I shared Jesus with him all the time. 
And then one day, he came to me out of the blue and his whole countenance had changed. And he told me he had followed this girl to her church. <laughs> and he sat through the sermon and, he's, and he started to describe this spiritual experience he had with Jesus. That was so profound. And as he was unpacking it, he started to kind of come to grips. He's like, like man, like, I think I might be like, ready to consider myself a Christian. However, and we, actually, we even prayed together, which was like, I was like, I'm praying with this guy. This is crazy. How did this happen? However, he admitted to me after, after we prayed and talked together that he still didn't believe in hell. And he still didn't believe that Jesus was the only way to God. He thought maybe there's many paths, right? And, uh, and so we debated that for a little while. And, and, but I told him ultimately in the moment that I rejoiced in his experience with Jesus, if it was with Jesus, and, uh, and that he had come this far. And I told him that I thought if it was really the Lord at work in him, that I believed his thinking would over time come more and more in line with the scriptures, with God's revealed word, mm -hmm. which was inspired by the Holy Spirit. And the cool thing is that it really happened. Mm -hmm. Like six months later, we were like on the same page on the scriptures and all these things. And he became a close brother. I still walk with him today. And very strangely, he's also an Anglican priest today. <laughs> it's very odd and surreal for both of us. Neither of us expected to end up here. I can tell you that much. <laughs> and while the presence of the Holy Spirit doesn't somehow make us like theologically infallible, I truly believe that my friend came to a deeper biblical faith because the anointing that he had received was real. There was a connection between the Spirit and the Word, between the anointing and the truth. But how can we be sure whether we have the Spirit of God or the Spirit of the Antichrist? Whether we're truly anointed or truly apostates, well, we've talked about some of the signs of the Holy Spirit, but John also mentioned several marks of those who have the Antichrist spirit at work in them. He actually gives two in this passage, and there's a third that we'll talk about next time. So look down with me at verse 19. It says, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. So again, it's referring to this heretical breakaway group that went out from them, that was now actively trying to lead them astray. So the first mark of the Antichrist spirit is the propensity to abandon the church of Christ. That's the first mark. Verse 19 continues, But they went out that it might become plain that they are not of us. In other words, there was a time when these folks were still a part of their community, right? And that it was, not, it was not yet plain what they were. When the wheat and the weeds were still mixed together, as Jesus would say. And no one could see the difference because true fellowship with Christ is a spiritual and invisible reality that we can't see with our waking eyes. Whereas the gathered church is always outward and visible. We're outward and visible today, aren't we? No doubt... In John's theology, there's an intimate connection between the visible church and the Spirit of God. That's one of his biggest emphases. But 
How can we know whether this true this connection is truly there for an individual or for a group of people? According to John, their abandonment of the church was a sure sign that they never actually knew the Lord. It's an outward manifestation, not of the fact that they, are fall, that they had fallen away from Christ. That's not what he's saying here. But that something was lacking all along. They went out that it might become plain that they are not of us. He said they never had true spiritual fellowship with us and with the Father and with the Son. They were never wrapped up into that. This invisible thing that we claim that was never theirs. Now this actually strikes me as a very high view of the church and of the centrality of Christian fellowship. Very high indeed. And I, I wonder how different this sounds to you from our sort of individualistic notions of Christianity in the American church. So we, we like to speak of private faith rather than public truth, right? We devote ourselves to private media consumption, to the latest telecast of Joel Osteen or Oprah Winfrey, or to the constant narratives of Fox News or CNN, rather than devoting ourselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, and to the breaking of bread. We tend to give greater weight to the private act of a sinner's prayer over the public demonstration and witness of public Christian baptism. We make up our own wedding vows and seek out destination weddings rather than making promises before God, before His church, and before the accountable eyes of our in-laws and our grandparents. And if our church won't bless our unbiblical lifestyle, we'll just go across the street to a church that will. We use the strategic placement of the Bible on our nightstand, whether or not we read it, as a substitute for committed church membership, boasting that we don't need religious institutions, but in the process we become like our own de facto popes of our lives. We do all these things. And we wonder why our doctrine is so full of confusion and our Christian lives so full of compromise. We're in the world, but we're also of the world. Jesus calls us to be in the world, but not of the world. How different are our ways from the supernatural view of the church that John held as a community set aside for true fellowship with the Trinity and with one another. This communal view of Christianity is really basic to the New Testament. Paul talked about the church as a body with many members, as an alternative kingdom. Jesus called the church a city on the hill. The author of Hebrews famously warns, don't give up assembling together. Some of us need to hear this this morning. Don't give up assembling together as some are in the habit of doing, but encourage one another. And all the more as you see the day approaching, the day, the second coming of Jesus. So in the New Testament, there's no such thing as a lone ranger Christian. That wasn't even a thing. In the early church, one of their favorite analogies to describe the uh, church was Noah's Ark. So they said the church is like the ark 
that, that protects us from the flood and leads us on to everlasting salvation. And when Christians actually finally began to construct churches, um, some of you guys might have noticed this, the churches um, architecturally looked like ups, upside down arcs. So you look up and it kind of looks like a boat, right? Have you ever noticed that? Yeah. Right, so could you imagine these early Christians abandoning the church as flippantly as modern Christians do? They would have viewed that as akin to diving from the bows of Noah's Ark's, Ark into the thrashing sea with no hope of dry land in sight. That's how they would have viewed that. My friends, I urge you, in view of this apostolic witness, to take your membership in the church more seriously. Do you take it seriously? Do you love the church that Jesus loves as his own bride? Not just incarnation, but the church with a capital C. Not just the building, but the people and the mission of God. Do you serve the church? Do you bring her the first fruits of your labors? The cream of your creative potential? Or does she always get your leftovers? Do you abandon the church when life gets busy or hard? The apostle wants us to know that the church is a supernatural fellowship. And to abandon it is just as serious today as it was in the days of John. As we had already said, we're living in the same age as him. So that's the first mark of this antichrist spirit, the propensity to abandon the church. But the second mark is even more foundational. The propensity to deny the truth about Christ. Verse 22 reads, Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist. He who denies the Father and the Son. So, so sort of putting the pieces together from various parts of this epistle. In chapter 1, we learned that this breakaway group denied the cleansing work of Christ on the cross. And here we learn that they deny that Jesus is the Christ, that he's the long prophesied Messiah. And in chapter 4, we learn that they deny the incarnation, that Jesus is the eternal Son of God who came in the flesh. They deny that as well. So at the heart of this heresy, of this antichrist disposition, was their denial of Jesus as Savior, Messiah, and as Son of God. As one commentator put it, these denials take the heart out of Christianity. And what it leaves us with is a Christianity that's utterly unrecognizable. There's no trinity, no forgiveness of sins, no eternal life. Not long after 1 John was written, or perhaps only a couple of decades later, Bishop Ignatius of Antioch, one of the earliest fathers of the church, battled against similar heresies. And he had to insist in one of his letters that Jesus was, quote, truly of the race of David according to the flesh. So he is the prophesied Messiah, but the Son of God by divine will and power, truly born of a virgin. In other words, truly divine. And finally, that he was truly nailed up in the flesh. He suffered truly and was also raised himself truly. So he's the Savior who defeated sin and death. So these antichrist heresies that were in work in John's day came on down through time to Ignatius' day, and they come on down through time 
in our day through the different cults and spin-off religions that almost always start by denying something fundamental about the nature of God and the nature of Jesus. Amen. Of course, these antichrists in John's day must have had some level of respect for Jesus, right? Otherwise, they wouldn't even got wrapped up in all this in the first place. But in the end, there wasn't much left of Jesus. In our day, we like to think of Jesus as a good moral teacher, one that we don't actually obey. But John actually goes a step further and says that by denying the Son, these people were implicitly denying the Father as well. Verse 23, no one who denies the Son has the Father, he says in verse 23. And whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. So again, we see Jesus is the door. He's the door to God. He's the door to the Father. So if these heretics believed that they could have the Father without having the Son, they were seriously mistaken. A denial of the Son carries with it, by necessity, a denial of the inherent fatherhood of God. Think about it for a minute. Just as there is no Son without a Father, so God the Father is not truly a Father without having a Son. And to deny Jesus is to deny the basic Christian notion of God as a personal, loving Father who has brought us back through His costly love. Bible scholar Howard Marshall writes that those who reject Jesus as the source of knowledge of God deprive themselves of access to the Christian God and are left with a bare abstraction. It's no longer the God who's been revealed, the personal God who's been revealed. It's just, just our sort of ethereal, abstract ideas about what God might be. In other words, if we deny God, if we deny Christ, we're left with almost nothing substantial about the Father. If we accept Christ, we accept this personal, loving, communal, Christian vision of who God is. Yeah. So I want to go back to my question from the beginning. What was it that gave my university such an obvious anti-Christian bias? And how is it that I found the same bias at work in the universities that I came to know in the years that followed? I know there are several reasons why people deny Christ. Could be that they want to live self-serving, unaccountable lives, free from God's moral standards. Some people have had the truth of Christ obscured for them by a hypocritical Christian or an unhealthy church. Some people are so scandalized by the exclusivity of Jesus' claims when he says, no one comes to the Father except through me. Some people are so scandalized by that that they haven't stopped to ask them, themselves the question, is what Jesus is saying, is, is it true? Is Jesus who he said he is? And I think for some, they just don't really know him yet. So they don't trust him yet. But when a whole group, a whole system has somehow set itself in unison, unchoreographed unison against Christ, against the truth of Christ, I think the Apostle John would call it like it is. That it's the antichrist spirit at work in this world. Amen. That spirit deceives us into abandoning 
the church and denying the truth of Christ. While the Spirit of God causes us to love the Father, love each other, and to openly confess the Son. Amen. Amen.